primary care knowledge boost, COVID-19, social prescribing. Hi everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we wanted to showcase an important yet sometimes underutilised area of community medicine, which is social prescribing. Yeah, we talk with GP and clinical champion for personalised care in Greater Manchester, Dr. Jawida Idu, and social prescribing lead for people and communities in Greater Manchester, Sophie Glinker. They're both hugely passionate about this topic and why it's so fundamental to community medicine. Yeah, it's really a joy to listen to. Yeah. We talk about social prescribing in the context of COVID specifically and also in the wider sense and we use case studies to showcase how it works in the real world. But just so you know, the names of the people and some of their details have been changed for patient confidentiality. Yeah, We hope you enjoy. Okay, so we always kick off with asking our guests to introduce themselves for our listeners. So do you want to let everyone know who we have on today? Hello everybody, I'm Sophie Glinker. I'm a Chief Officer of a charity based in Glossop um, that runs amongst many other projects social prescribing. But I work as social prescribing lead for Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership in the person-centred and community approaches team. Hello everyone, my name's Juida Idu. I'm a, a Stockport GP. I work at the Alvinley Family Practice. Um, I'm very passionate about social prescribing and I also work with Sophie in the Greater Manchester Person-Centred Community Approaches team as their clinical champion for person-centred care. So I guess that leads nicely into asking why are we talking about social prescribing today? So social prescribing is our real opportunity to tap into the power of communities So we know that 90% of factors that influence people's health is rooted within communities and only 10% rooted within medicine and within the system. So social prescribing is our bridge to that. It's our opportunity to link people into communities and to make the most of all the wonderful stuff that happens there. So yeah, to start, can you talk us through a bit of a background to social prescribing? Who can become a social prescriber? Where it all came from? Yeah, so most people that work within the communities or the voluntary sector would tell you that social prescribing has been here forever. Um, And I'd agree with that. So social prescribing really is recognising the value of community activity in kind of all its forms, thinking about what makes you happy and what makes you healthy as an individual. If you ask most people, even people struggling with a long-term condition or other health issue, the things that really matter to them that's at the centre of their world is their relationships with people, their hobbies, the things they do with their time that really makes them feel good. And it goes back to kind of the thinking around that you can feel well and you can feel healthy even if you're not healthy physically. Some people feel really well when they're not. Some people can be physically healthy but feeling well. And a lot of that, when you look into the reasons for that, are rooted within the things that people do with their time um, that makes them happy within within community, whether that's singing, whether that's walking the dog, catching up with friends, and other factors such as having enough money, the wider determinants of health, having enough money, having somewhere to live, having access to healthcare, but also solving wider problems like relationship problems, family problems. So social prescribing is a way to enable people to sort through those rafts of kind of challenges and opportunities in the life. And the person that becomes a social prescriber has to recognise the value of that. 
So they only ask um, in terms of job description, generally for social prescribing link workers is a level three equivalent qualification. And there are qualifications available now in social prescribing, but it's not an entry requirement. The more important thing for social prescribers is that passion for people and that passion and understanding for the wider determinants of health and the things that make you feel well um, and can increase your well-being. Also an understanding and a value of communities and the way they work and what motivates people to come together in communities and what can be a catalyst for that activity and really to build relationships with people. Social prescribing is all about relationships with the people that need support but also relationships with communities and that belief that people don't just receive services they give and receive at the same time so people won't go into a community and take services they give at the same time they have as a lot of people say assets which sounds a bit crazy but it's the things that people have that they give nobody's without strengths and qualities that would be valued within their communities I think a good social prescriber is someone that has the confidence to challenge the system as well and somebody that really believes in this stuff and can be an advocate. Yeah. And just generally, Sophie, are they coming from different diverse backgrounds in general or? Link workers. Yeah, link workers, social prescribers. It it really does vary. Our social prescribers, just by chance, really, are all qualified social workers. Mm. Um, But you have nurses, you have healthcare assistants, there's not one route in it but we want social prescribers to represent that community that's the best thing so a quality is that that person perhaps understands that community or is representative of that community yeah so what do you see the role of social prescribing as at the moment during COVID-19 so I suppose from our perspective in general practice our link workers have been an absolute godsend. Um, If you think about the number of patients we've had to identify who are going to the shielded group, the vulnerable groups, the at-risk groups, our social link worker has worked with our receptionists to support those individuals, to help make those phone calls, to support our receptionists and healthcare assistant who at the time couldn't do her routine blood tests and routine monitoring work to start to build um, an opportunity of supporting those individuals around their obtaining their medicine safely around making sure they had access to food and linking them in with our community in Woodley where we have what's called a mutual aid group which is already a cohort of volunteers. My practice already has a cohort of practice volunteers and together with the link worker they actually coordinated more than 500 people to support our shielded patients. And the beauty for me and the part that made me feel very privileged was that the practice was a key part of the community. And it's how with your link workers and with your communities, you start to see your practice and your practices within your PCN as a community anchor in themselves. So what that helped with us is, um, so you heard Sophie mention that 90% of health is determined by the wider determinants and not medicine. Mm. Um, Equally, um, if you look at hospital admissions and um, GP attendances and appointments, it tends to be those 
recurrent attendances tend to be from people who are struggling with the broader determinants rather than necessarily having a medical need. So having a link worker has helped us both at a practice level and at a community level, both during COVID and pre-COVID, support those individuals. And therefore, the pressure and the demand on the practice has significantly been managed and reduced because of that. But also, it's helped my practice and practice staff start to see the value of working with their link work and being part of the community. I mean, we are quite an unusual practice. We have our own allotment. We have our own walking groups. We have our own singing groups. But it, for me, it's been a bit of a paradigm shift because our relationship with patients has actually fundamentally changed. Mm. Medicine has always been a deficit model. You see a patient and they're ill and there's something wrong with them. Mm. And we never see what's actually, so if you use the word assets, but they have strength strengths as well and of course we never tap into that as medics because we're focused on that medical model identifying the deficits diagnosing treating and then doing a prescription or an onward referral or managing them completely in that way and I know part of our training Pendleton etc is around asking the holistic questions and we do but it's actually understanding how to support those holistic needs of that individual the link worker has been able to do a lot of that work and our link workers are deployed into each of the networks and work within the community, identify the resources within the community, but they work with social care as well. Mm -hmm. And during COVID, we offer telephone support to the local authority telephone number helpline as well. So it all became very joined up, uh, yeah. worked very closely with our community pharmacists to arrange deliveries of medicines and that we we could just navigate so many things because this person had the kindness and I think the genuinely incredibly kind, compassionate people who act as, Sophie says, advocates, not just for those individuals, but for us as well within our practice to make sure we're, we're supporting those patients. So the ones who really need to see us from a medical perspective get access quickly. Pre-COVID, we shifted from 15 appointments per clinic to 12 because of the impact of being able to signpost and support people who didn't have a medical need because we, we can now offer 15-minute appointments. It was something I dreamed of years ago, but it's taken 23 years in the same practice to finally get there. And I actually think it was our link worker. And I think the potential now for PCNs and clinical directors, and I'm looking for clinical directors actually in Greater Manchester who want to get involved and work with me and become champions with me because... It's an opportunity where we start to build that whole community asset and then we can address some of those population health needs and that yeah. then leads to delivering the objectives of the long-term plan. But the way to do it is to do it with working with strength and not working with deficit. So that paradigm shift that I talked about is moving from illness to wellness and that hierarchical relationship that we've had with patients has become a partnership. Yeah. And I've never been happier in my job because of it, I think. That's great. Yeah, we were just talking about kind of all those difficult sides of people's lives that impact on their health that we feel quite powerless to do much about as, as general practitioners or people working in primary care. This is tackling all of those things. Yeah, 90% is a huge chunk to ignore. <laughs> we can't influence the 90%, no. but we have these incredible people that work within our PCNs and incredible communities and voluntary sector organisations. I've learned so much more about my 
practice community, practice family. We call it the Alvinley Way, the Alvinley family. But we we totally embedded into that mm. that community, and I can't tell you the joy it brings, really, because I think the word is joy in your work. It's made your job fun, you know, um, and we still tick all the boxes. In fact, we tick all the boxes better because the demand on the practices reduce. Mm. We've seen a 28% reduction in frequent attendances from people that have engaged with social prescribing. So we had a lady who had more than 50 contacts one year. And once she got involved in the singing group and made friends and they started to meet for coffee regularly, she stopped coming. And, and we mm. couldn't help her the way the community could help her. And it's recognising that that really impacts on demand in primary care, in urgent care. So it's probably old fashioned general practice. If you go back to when I was a medical student 30 years ago, the GP was part of the community and lived in the community. You knew the local butcher. They always kept the best piece of meat for you around the back. And I, I remember those sort of attachments that I did as a medical student. Um, and I feel almost like we're coming full circle again because we'd lost that value and uh, it's great to have the opportunity to reignite and reinvigorate it. Definitely. I was just thinking because that was nice to hear about the um, the lady there, that patient example. Do you, have, do you have any other thinking, just keeping patient confidentiality and things like that, um, do you have any other examples of how it's worked during COVID or anything quite well? Well, I think Sophie's got one and I've got another one. So maybe if you hear Sophie's first and then I'll tell you about Dave. So our first one is John. He's a gentleman in his 80s and he's been self-isolating because of his age, but also because of the long-term conditions he's got. And he was very, very frail and he relied heavily on his son. So John was connected to one of our social prescribers. Um, We call them community navigators. And she started chatting to John and understanding the different pressures. Um, his son was isolating because of symptoms of COVID-19 and not wanting to pass it on to his dad. Yeah. So we've been doing some work connecting with our medications hub because one of the challenges that people were facing was getting hold of their medication and getting it delivered and pharmacies were overwhelmed So we connected as a voluntary sector organisation, 10 of our volunteers into the pharmacy hub to expand their ability to reach more vulnerable people that couldn't get out at home. So, and that was something that wouldn't have been possible without social prescribing because they are really connected into the needs of the system, but also the community. And we were able to say, you know, we've got a hundred people here that can't get their prescriptions, but really need them. So John was connected to that um, and started getting his prescriptions delivered and he was relying on his son before that. Um, he was also referred into a volunteer scheme that we've got, and a um, similar to a mutual aid group, but a team of volunteers that were happy to support with shopping needs. So John could get the kind of food packages from the community response units, but there was things he needed because he had dietary requirements and he struggled to swallow and his teeth weren't great. So um, some of our volunteers started doing kind of bespoke shops for John mm. as well. Um, so he was able to get the things that he enjoyed. Jelly and custard was a favourite. And um, we also set up with a team of volunteers a check-in and chat service response. Okay. So you could have between one and three calls a week with volunteers. Because they from well check really, but also friendship and yeah. joke telling. And um, Paul, who coordinates our 
call companions we call them um, in our organisation does a joke of the week and preps up a set of jokes and they read the newspaper ready to chat about local news with people that's careers so John received that as well and also John needed to go for his routine procedures that he needs for his health conditions to the hospital and we're struggling locally now with people that need access to those day-to-day things that they'd usually get to support their health and John was told that he needed a test before he could go into hospital for his procedure, a COVID-19 test. And they'd asked John, who'd been self-isolating, to go on public transport to the hospital to get a test. So you think, oh, that's probably not the best thing for John. But the system couldn't necessarily see that. They had their processes and reasons for their processes. And it needed somebody coming from John's point of view, which was the link worker, to say, hold on a minute, surely there's a better way of doing this. So the link worker spent time talking to the hospital and the community matron uh, to ask if we could test older people at home so that they didn't have to put themselves at risk and travel dangerously for a frail person on public transport. And then as soon as we discussed that, that was fine. and, And the community matron and her team were able to do that. So it's that kind of problem solving as well that social prescribing can really do with a different perspective. There's the practical things that increase well-being, but there's the problem solving within the system that sometimes through the lens that you operate in within your role, you can't necessarily see sometimes that things don't make sense for people. So John's had his test at home now and he's, he's waiting to hear back from this. And then we'll be able to support him with our volunteer car scheme when he needs to go in for his procedure. Um, and keep him safe. So there's so many solutions that as a social prescribing service we can wrap around John that you just wouldn't you wouldn't be able to know they existed if you were a GP. There's no way you could keep track of it all. I was literally just thinking that I, I could picture those phone calls coming in and if you didn't have that link worker link yeah. you'd just be you'd feel stuck. It would be that feeling of what on earth am I going to do with this? Yeah. How do I get this solved? How much time is this going to take me because I don't know who I need to call? Like it, it's such a good resource to have. It is, and it is the it's the solutions that you don't don't think of that always stand out to me. As well that that my link workers see and I've got a quote here from John. So he said I feel really happy with the support I've achieved. You've done everything that you possibly can for me. And I love that. So it's that feeling you can say to him that he feels somebody out there has done everything they can for every aspect of his life. It's not just about kind of the solution at the end of it. The value in it is often in the relationship with the link worker as well as the community because it's feeling that somebody's going, right, tell me, tell me what you need. And I'll unpick all these different factors. I won't just come up with one solution for one part of your life and you have to go somewhere else for another part of your life. I'm going to try and unpick all this for you. What What was the second one you had, Sophie? These are really interesting. These are fascinating. So John was more of a, a COVID-19 specific case. But Sue, the other lady I've got to tell you about, is in the current context. But her, the factors why she came to us were not COVID specific, if that makes yeah. sense. So she's been newly diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and she was referred to us because she was at home with a family and she wasn't ready to discuss that with them yet. She didn't want to lean on them for support at this time. So she was connected into our uh, social prescribing service and our link worker gave Sue lots of time, I suppose, was the main thing. So she spent an hour just listening to Sue 
And then she called Sue back again later that week, being a listening ear, and then really trying to connect Sue with some solutions outside her family. So she was referred into a local breast cancer support group that we've got. I think the approach that the link worker took was a coaching approach. So um, all our link workers have been trained in person-centred coaching. And it's that bit about giving people time and understanding their own goals and moving them forward through that. So uh, the link worker's checking in with them weekly. Um, She's having the support from the breast cancer peer support group. And she's finding out about counselling and support for her sons so when they know so she feels that when she tells them she can connect them with something in case they struggle with it so I suppose a message that I'd want to get out there is that we need to still connect these people there's still people sitting at home that need that support and probably their situations made worse by lockdown and, and being stuck in the house and not having the usual coping strategies and mechanisms and social prescribing can very much support them, even if it's not the traditional way of face-to-face meetings. That support is still valuable and, and can work for people. Yeah, massively. And in fact, I think some needs, as Sophie says, have, have increased. So we are seeing an increase in domestic violence and we are seeing an increase in alcohol misuse, We, you know. And so it's interesting because our receptionists are so bedded into working with our link worker who we call a care and well-being navigator as well they're trained in signposting and when they identify somebody who phones them they actually initiate the referral rod our link worker has sat with them and sat with them in reception and coach them actually to be able to identify and support individuals and make that referral i do think it's been great because he can directly contact those individuals they're consented by the receptionist during that telephone call so amazing that you don't even like you said it's a receptionist dealing with that that's so empowering that's amazing one of the stories I've got is is regarding a very distressed lady who who rang because her husband was dying and while he was so unwell and they do live in poverty and the, the area I work in there is a lot of poverty she had missed the dates for claiming for some of the benefits that they need to to actually continue and manage and she got extremely distressed because she'd missed the deadline uh, and she rang the practice because she didn't know where else to turn or how to to get that support and my receptionist immediately put her in touch with Rod who said ask her to come in now and he spent an hour with her and during that hour he was able to sort out all those things that I certainly wouldn't know what to do Um, and he also identified she was entitled to a Macmillan grant and various other levels of support supported her got her in touch with Beechwood which um, in Stockport is our cancer centre and they offer counselling and psychological support as well to families as well as individuals and um, within that hour completely alleviated all the distress that woman had because for her she should be focusing on her husband and his last days of life rather than all that anxiety about I'm going to maybe lose my home or get evicted or where's the next meal coming from and I was so proud of the fact that my receptionist had identified this really you know really distressing state that this woman had got into and and I didn't even know about it until about a week later 
because it had just all happened and I think it all worked it just worked and I think that that's how important it is I think that the whole practice team are on board and really understand how important that person is as a member of the team and one of the other things our link workers have done that was really wonderful during Covid I'm sure most of us had practice staff that were very anxious during that period anxious about themselves anxious about their family members and our link workers offered some coaching and support to our practice staff during that time and the way he's worked with our practice champions and he's created like a community directory we call it the community dos but he knows everything that's within that area so his ability to support and signpost all those fantastic things that go on in the community that we couldn't possibly know about um has, has been incredible really yeah one of the stories is regarding a chap and i do have his permission this you know to tell his story is david and he he had a severe copd and he was put on the gsf about three and a half years ago he struggled really struggled with his breathing he'd done pulmonary rehab he'd stopped smoking so he'd done all the right things but still in a difficult situation and he was self-managing his condition he had a you know self-management plan his rescue meds so I think we'd optimized him from a medical perspective as much as we could but accepted that he was really at that sort of potential end stage and one of the things he said once he got involved in uh, volunteering is that he used to love um, going to Lime Park do you remember the cage at Lime Park that beautiful sort of it's like a hill and there's a, a building there and as a boy he used to lie on his back and watch the planes go by mm. and he'd said to us that you know when I die I'd love my ashes to be sprinkled there because I, so many happy memories of my youth and I'll know I'll never get up there we said to him why don't you try going to the walking group and just kind of signposted him off a little bit there and he uh, well he started and really really struggled the walking group is a mile and it's very flat but he mm. really struggled but eventually he built up his walking capability and we got very tearful actually because he managed to walk up to the cage eventually mm. at, at Lime Park and three and a half years down the line he's not on the GSF um, <laughs> oh. he's an avid garden and grows all his own fruit and veg so he and his wife manage the practice allotment and they bring people in the community there they support and educate people on how to grow their own vegetables we've got other members of the community who teach them how to to cook their own vegetables they call it grow your own cook your own and it's given them that altruism has given them a whole new purpose yeah and he's absolutely thrived and I would not have I would not have even known he had all those skills and assets and the way he's worked in the community to to actually have a whole new purpose has been great and the allotments become such a great community space but it's a great practice space so we do some of our group consultations there with pre-diabetics my nurse has them all sitting around and obviously with covid we can't do that anymore so we're doing zoom group consultations with our patients and it's just building that whole knitting that whole community in where there's mutual support so it's not about doing things to them they're doing things for themselves they're sharing recipes and of course I don't see the COPD anymore. I see an avid vegetable grower who might give me some advice on what to do with my courgettes. So um, it, it, it really is. It's a completely different relationship. Yeah. I, I can't tell you. It's just, and it's great to see that although we'd optimise medically, it's the non-medical part, that 90% yeah. that is actually, he's less lonely. He said he's made 17 friends for life. It's how you actually 
can keep people well without without using medicine so you know I'll now think about that referral before a prescription for antidepressants or anything I was I was literally thinking that when you were telling that story, how you you'd optimized everything medically, you'd kind of gotten to the end of everything that you would, and you'd almost accepted yeah. the inevitable. And just with that referral and thinking outside the box in terms of there's maybe something non medical here that can help, you've extended his life and given him, like you said, a new lease of life. Oh, it's amazing! And he used to say things like, "I used to wake up every day thinking I was dying, and now I wake up every day just loving living." And and how can you how can you measure? I don't know. I don't know what to say really. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not been down to medicine. Yeah, We've done our medical bit, but the rest of it has come from the community and, and, and having that ability to connect with others, reducing that loneliness. We know loneliness has the same mortality and morbidity as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Stepto et al, if you want the reference. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, it's evidence-based that loneliness, if you can tackle loneliness in older people, you will increase their life expectancy. Keeping them active, physically active with the walks and the allotment, connecting them with others through singing groups and other... Uh, we have a knit and natter and a coffee and a chat group. We've got a digino group where we work with our social enterprise within the community. It's a cafe and they inc- you know, they improve their IT skills. So all our champions now, some of them are shielding, but we have a Zoom meeting with them because they can't come out, but we get to see them on Zoom. And it, uh, it's amazing how COVID has really enhanced all our IT skills. Yeah. And now I just think it's the future, you know, general practice, collaborative general practice is the future and being part of that community because it's just a win-win isn't it it is yeah well if we i think that's a really nice place to end it actually um <laughs> do you want to each kind of sum up what you want our listeners to take away from today's discussion so i think from my perspective i would love my gp colleagues and practices to really embrace the full opportunity of having a link worker within their network and see it as a potential to becoming part of that community themselves and seeing all the wonderful benefits that come from that both from a workload perspective from enjoying your job and developing those fantastic different types of relationships with your patients because ultimately you end up feeling great about your practice and your patients feel better for it. So from a GM perspective, if you're a GM, GP, then please contact us as part of the PCCA team because I'm their clinical champion and I'll do anything I can to support you in that. Thank you. And Sophie? I think I would like people to take away that kind of belief and passion that community is a huge enabler to increase people's health outcomes. It's massive and it's there and it's thriving and it's just thinking about how you bridge that and social prescribing's a way to do that. But also to recognise that it's of equal weight. It's not something that's kind of secondary. That's where it should start. You know, that is as powerful as some of the solutions for people's wellbeing. And that's where the stuff that can really boost health and prevent ill health lies and and social prescribing and buying into that and and giving social prescribing link workers um that time to develop and support communities and understand them and to spend time with people and picking their their needs so that they can access all the support that's available there 
really, I believe, is the key to to better health and, and tackling health inequalities within our communities. Well, one of the many solutions to it, but a key one. And and it's a gift, isn't it? I mean, all the challenges of the long-term plan and the new dares, there's lots of challenges in that, but there is a gift within that. And that's some fully funded staff that can really help to kind of tackle this stuff. And it just needs that vision and, and enabling from practices to, to make that happen for patients. Brilliant. Well, thank you guys both so much for today. I've really enjoyed kind of understanding more about uh, the social prescribers and, and, and what you can do for us in primary care. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank oh, well, you. Glad. I've enjoyed it. So it was lovely to talk to Sophie and Joida today. Their enthusiasm is infectious. Yeah. What are your learning points that you took away from this session, Lisa? It was just so nice to think about innovative ways of working and how to not stay stuck in that medical model. Yeah. Um, and I think they showcased really well examples of how community care can change and change in a way that can then change people's lives. Yeah, it's so nice. Um, I always learn best through examples. So it's really, really lovely to hear about such good outcomes. Um, yeah. And it's so often that as a GP, I feel so ill-fitted to genuinely make a difference to somebody's life when they've got loads of problems that extend so far beyond the medical conditions. And it's great to hear of all those inspiring stories that it's not just helping patients with their health, but genuinely with their well-being and enjoyment and passion for life. Yeah, I was really struck by the change in thought process that Juida and Sophie evoked, um, not to just think about the patient as a medical problem and what's wrong with them, um, but to think of their strengths um, that could be brought out that could then help them to cope in their situation. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks to everyone for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can tweet us at pckbpodcast. Or you can fill in our one minute survey that we've linked to along with other resources mentioned today in the episode description. And if you are enjoying these, then please do share with a friend, let other people know about them. Uh, we really enjoy hearing down the, the links in the grapevine of people who've um, been recommended us um, and it just makes our day. So, yeah, please do if you, if you like us. Yes, brilliant. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, the content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.